Please join me and take your Bible to Exodus chapter 30. And would you stand with me, please? We'll read this morning's scripture reading from Exodus chapter 30. The second part of our scriptures known as the Pentateuch. These first five books of the Old Testament scripture. We are here in Exodus chapter 30. God has been revealing to us that he is a covenant king. And we find that repeated today in Exodus chapter 30. This is the word of the Lord. You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square. Two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its side and its horns, and you shall make a molding of gold around it. You shall make two golden rings for it under its molding on two opposite sides of it. You shall make them. They shall be holders for the poles with which to carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where it shall meet with you, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamp, he shall burn it. When Aaron sets up the lamp at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering to the Lord throughout your generation. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering or a grain offering. You shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. <clears throat> the Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there may be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel of 20 geras is 20 geras. Half a shekel is an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more. The poor shall not give less than the half shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and shall give it for the servant of the tent of meeting that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement for your lives. The Lord said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze, which is to stand, which with its stand of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. You shall put water in it, with which Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet. When they go into the tent of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet so that they may not die. It shall be a statute forever to them. Even 
to him and to his offspring throughout their generation. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels of sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. You shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, and the ark of the testimony, and the table, and all the utensils, and the lampstand, and its utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offering, with all its utensils, and the basin, and its stand. You shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons, consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests. You shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person. You shall make no other like it in comparison. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, and whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. The Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, Sakti and Annika, Galbanum, sweet spices of pure frankincense, which there shall be equal part. Make an incense blended as by a perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it, very small, and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting, where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you, and the incense that you shall make according to its composition. You shall not make for yourself. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. We trust that it will add his blessing to its reading. You can be seated. And children, you can be dismissed to Children's Church. We are examining the particular details of the tabernacle in the wilderness. If you have a handout for this morning, you'll see on the back there's a rendering of that tabernacle, which I think is fairly accurate. You'll see there that the courtyard itself measures 75 by 150 feet. The tent of meeting in the middle of the courtyard measures 30 by 15 feet. The most significant characteristic of the tabernacle is an area called the Holy of Holies. It measures 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. That becomes significant later when the Bible tells us in the end, in the culmination, that God comes from heaven to be with man in a new heaven and a new earth, a Jerusalem out of heaven that is also a cube. This helps us understand the significance of this most holy place in the tabernacle. This represents God's presence with his people. So today we'll set our attention on two particular areas in this tabernacle. That is the altar and the oil of incense. By significance of this record we're reminded that we have a constant need for atonement. And that the sacrifices for our atonement 
are pleasing to God. I want to repeat that because that's going to be the theme that I want to land our understanding in at the end of the sermon. From this text, we are reminded that we have a perpetual need for atoning and that God is honored by the sacrifices for our atoning. So what that means is we are needy and He is glorified in providing. That's the theme that we pick up in Exodus chapter 30. The title I've given for this sermon is Our Neediness is a Pleasing Odor to God. Join me in walking a little bit in the shoes of those Israelites, those Hebrew people, who are meeting at Mount Sinai. They are what's called syncretistic people. They've been raised that way. It's, it's their presupposition. Syncretism. In other words, in Scripture, there are peoples described who may believe in gods, multiple gods, those gods operating in some sort of balance or harmony. Syncretism is to say, sure, a God named Yahweh exists. That's pleasant. Gods of all sorts of names exist. That's syncretism. We are not only confessing they exist, but we're, to some measure, grateful that they exist. The people who are standing at Mount Sinai who are hearing God say numerous times, I want you to know... 68 times to be exact in the Old Testament, God says, I want you to know that I am Yahweh. He is not inviting this people to know that a God named Yahweh exists. He is insisting that they confess that God, Yahweh, is God alone. In other words, when God says all these 68 times... Know that I am Yahweh. It is a sort of shorthand for saying this. Know that I, who created and control all things, have all power and have provided all the blessings that you have enjoyed and are here witnessing. I am Yahweh. There is no other doing these things but only me. Believe that I am the only God and place your full faith, your dependence, your thankfulness in me. Therefore, your full allegiance belongs to me and my covenant. Know that I am Yahweh. The question about knowing God has to include what pleases God. What is God happy with? What is God's will? What's his pleasure? If I could invite you, you don't need to turn there, but if I could invite you to think about Jesus preaching in Matthew 7... In Matthew 7, Jesus preaches what we know as the Sermon on the Mountain. And he says there near the end, in his, in his closing point, he says, many of you are going to come in the end and you'll say, Jesus, Jesus, you're the master, the master. Literally saying to Jesus, kurios, kurios, master. But I will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, because you did not do the pleasure of my Father. The will. What God wants. 
Jesus says there will be an indictment for many religious people because they didn't do the pleasure of the Father. Paul builds on that in Philippians chapter 2. He says, For all those who are the people of God, God is working in them both to do and to will His good pleasure. What pleases God? Frankly, what pleases God, according to what we read in just Exodus 30, is a bit counter-cultural. Everything we come to expect to please others is often based on our own performances. It's based on how good we are at something at work or as a family member, as a contributing part of your neighborhood or your community. What pleases God? This chapter helps us understand that. And my hope is to walk us through four statements from Exodus 30 that show us the pleasures of God. Let me pray and then let's walk through these four. Lord, I'm prayerful to you this morning and dependent on you that you would reveal this truth not only to our ears but to our heart. Shape the way that we steward our day and our life because we understand you. We understand the liberty of your good pleasures. I pray that we would rejoice in the truth of who you are to us in our neediness. In Jesus' name, amen. First of all, in the first 10 verses, you'll see in your Bible, there's a paragraph. I would title this paragraph for us, God's pleasure in receiving our plea. The paragraph's about what's called the altar of incense. The altar of incense is what's in the holy place. 30 by 15 by 15. 15 feet high, 15 feet wide, 30 feet deep. The holy place. Remember, that holy place is divided in half. And the back half of the holy place is the most holy place. This altar of incense is set right before the curtain that divides the two portions of the tent. The altar of incense represents God's pleasure and acceptance of sacrifice on behalf of his people. Verse 1 through 6 specifies the construction and the placement of the temple. And then 7 through 10 explains to us the use of the altar. It is an altar to burn incense on. It's like a small trunk. It's got horns apparently on each corner. It's square, but it's two cubits tall. Like the other objects in the tent, it's made of acacia wood. It's overlaid with gold. It has rings for carrying it. Look at verse 7. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense twice a day. Keep the incense burning. The priest is going to come and make sure this odor, this offering, fills the holy place. Verse 9. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it. You don't, you don't get to do this by your own terms. You can't come to the altar and it's incense according to your own good intentions. I think that's a... We're going to find that more vividly in the coming chapters. 
I, I think it is somewhat profound the way this instruction, this, this dynamic of relationship between creatures and creator has been so edited in our culture to say, quite frankly, the opposite. Kind of come to God as you are and do what seems reasonable and what's most enjoyable, perhaps. This word of instruction, I think, is helpful. Look at verse 10. Aaron shall make atonement for it once a year. This is an interesting statement. It's just this passing verse that says, oh, by the way, there is coming a day of atonement. It will be a most holy day. A ritual of the day of atonement. This fact that there will be an atoning celebration tells us that God's salvation will be available by vicarious substitute atonement. And it's just a passing statement for now. However, on this altar of incense, the smoke of incense was a constant reminder of the people's indebtedness and need for sacrifice. If I could say in concluding this first point, the fragrant smoke of the burning incense symbolizes our plea to God in prayer. What I mean by that can be found in places like Psalm 141. May my prayer be set before you like incense. May the lifting up of my hands be like the evening sacrifice. Or as we get toward the conclusion of the continuity of temples in Revelation 5. They were holding bowls full of incense which are the prayers of the saints. Or Revelation 8. Another angel who had golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. This constant billowing of incense to God must not go out because it represented how often the people must be pleading to God as their Savior. How often they were dependent on God for their salvation. God is pleased in our plea to Him. Now, when it comes to our plea, I think there are two potential ditches, and they're probably represented in pretty wide scope in the room. When it comes to your sense of pleading to God, maybe you're in this early sanctification process. Maybe you're a newer Christian. And you feel like you fail at almost every turn. You're struggling to be faithfully consistent in the things you think please your Lord and Savior. And so you might think, he must be so wearied by my constant plea for him. That I constantly need his grace. And, and I want to say to you, as you struggle and maybe stumble through faithful conduct, that God is pleased 
It is his pleasure to hear our plea for need of him. The other, the other category in the room might be a person who says, I've, I've been doing this Christianity a long time. I've learned from my mistakes. I think I'm doing a lot better than I used to. I don't think I need him quite as much as I used to. And I, I want to caution you that that's most definitely not the case. Again, we could go back to the Sermon on the Mount. We could hear Jesus talk about the true nature of falling short. And we would confess that we have no less need to plea than we first had. And so this constant incense offered to God, the prayers of his people saying, you alone, Lord, are our salvation. Secondly, in verses 11 through 16, God's pleasure is receiving a ransom price. So we saw first the altar of incense. Now we're going to see something pretty significant, which is a census to collect uh, a poll tax. A census. Now, for those of you who are maybe avid Bible students, you read about a census and you say, oh, I thought that was bad. Well, it kind of is bad. If you've read the life of King David, you know that his taking a census, counting the people, was a terrible sin. Why was it a sin? The best I can tell, there are only two reasons in Old Testament culture that a person would ever take a census. There are only two reasons. One is because you're counting how many people you have to go into war with. The other one is you're counting how many people you have to start collecting taxes from, to pay for national debts. And for Israel, neither of those were legitimate reasons. Israel was not called to count the cost to see if they should go to battle. But rather, God would send a prophet who would say to them, All right, you're going to go to battle. The conquest of Canaan is going to be a battle, but God's told you to do it, so don't bother counting the people, just go do what he says. Likewise, to say, let's count the people and see how much we need to tax them so that we can get by, was also a sin, because God had promised to provide for his people. So counting the people was a disregard of the covenant promise. So here, when we read that God commands that a census and a tax be collected, it's significant. Counting the people and collecting from each person a tax. That is referred to, look at verse 12, as a ransom price. A price to cover a ransom communicates neediness. This ransom rec recognizes two important facts. God owns the lives of his people. And second, God generously gave the life back so that they could enjoy the abundant life he himself had provided for them in covenant protection. Your life belongs to him. He, as a father, delights in giving you life to enjoy him with. Look at verse 13. He says, half a shekel. Half a shekel given by everyone. The rich and the poor. It's a small amount of money, but it's a flat tax. This would not go over well in our day. You're telling me the rich people and the poor people are going to pay the same amount? I thought about that this week as I was studying this text. I thought... 
Does it cost more for rich people to live here? Like, do they drive on different roads than I drive on? Or call different police department than I call? But they've got to pay more. They've got more. They've got to pay a lot more. Half a shekel, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, this is what you owe. This symbolized a ransom price. The ransom is a beautiful picture of the work of Christ. Listen to Matthew 20, verse 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as the ransom price for many. They understood ransom payment. And Jesus comes to be the ransom payment. Have you noticed how many times in Exodus 25 through 30, God is reminding His people of their need for atonement? I think He's making a point. I think there's something that He wants us to understand. Over and over, we have woven into this tabernacle, this meeting of people with their God. We have interwoven these elements that fellowship requires atonement. I think for some people in the room, they would say, well, yeah, we understand. Like, Christ is a significant part of the Bible. He is the ransom. He's our atonement. But, but I think still for some other people, they think, well, yeah, Christ is an important part of the Bible, but I think what God wants from me is my good behavior, my good conduct. And I, I want you to see in Exodus 30... The emphasis put on atonement price. And I want you to understand from places like Matthew that Christ is the ransom paid to God on our behalf for all those who will believe. The third section of Scripture is in 17 through 21. And here we see God's pleasure in keeping the religious clean. So we have this bronze laver this this bowl described look at verse 17 you shall make a basin of bronze probably copper or tin difficult to translate but it'd be well i won't get into the archaeology the need for ritual washing of the priests i i shared with you last week that what was happening in the courtyard was was a bloody scene these priests are offering sacrifices. And the Bible says that the priests, whether they participated in the sacrifice or not, whether they had blood on them or not, were responsible, before they even went into the holy place, were responsible to wash themselves, hands and feet. This washing, look at verse 17, is between the tent of meeting and the altar. These priests would come and wash their hands and their feet. Look how important it is. Verse 20 and verse 21. There are two things that tell us how important it was that these priests wash up before going into the holy place. First, it's the fact that it's repeated. Same thing said in verse 20 and verse 21. Second is the fact that there's a penalty of death for not doing it. Hand washing. I went up to a, one of those hand sanitizer stations the other day. I forget where I was. I went up and I put my hand on it. Nothing came out. And I thought, well, guess that chapter is closed. <laughs> Remember, hand washing and sanitation was the most important thing you could do in your day. This picture 
of the imperative cleansing, symbolically, is repeated and both times given a stern warning. Each generation of God's people needed to understand purity. Our holy God demands that we approach Him in purity. Aaron and his sons had to wash constantly. Religious obedience as they approach and minister and serve before a holy God. But when Jesus comes, he purifies the purifier. You see this? So Jesus comes and does something that I don't think anyone who was practicing religion of the day could have ever expected. Jesus comes and does two things specifically for these religious priests. First of all, he makes all the religious practices that they've engaged in relevant. Jesus brings an efficacy to hundreds of animal sacrifices. The, the Bible, I, I want to say quickly, the Bible gives us this tension, right? There's this instruction. Do carefully these animal sacrifices. And then the Bible also says, God's not pleased with the sacrifice of animals. That the blood of an animal isn't going to atone for your sin. But when Christ comes, he makes effective what had been done in obedience, which could not on its own save them, but Christ gave it merit. The other thing he does that I don't think they ever could have expected is he ended the system. He concluded it. He is the exclamation point of the practice. He brings an end to the offerings, being himself the perfect sacrifice, making all those other offerings acceptable, as well as offering up a sacrifice to end all sacrifice. So the point I want you to see is that we have people pictured in this text who are doing the good work. Their job is work in the tabernacle. Like they're doing what God says. They're dotting the I's and crossing the T's. And what did they need? Jesus. They need Jesus. Ephesians 5 explains that. Christ sanctifies the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. She is forever without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The cleansed, obedient servant needed the cleansing of Jesus Christ. Baptism is a great picture of this cleansing. It signifies the achievement of purity through the forgiveness of sins. Hebrews 10.22 So let us draw near with true heart and full assurance with our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I want you to know that God is pleased with the ongoing cleansing of even the most religious people. God is pleased that your religiousness will never make you independent from God. That you will still be needy 
no matter how good you get at doing religion. Fourthly, from verses 22 through 38, God is pleased to do sacred anointing of what is common. There is this oil and the ingredients for incense described in this section. The practical and the symbolic intersect here, don't they? Imagine the smell. I don't know how many of you grew up on a farm or somebody, I won't say who it was. Oh, no, I do remember who it was. I still won't say. But somebody grew up in Minnesota. Well, you, you can ask each other. Just ask each other. They're in the room, I believe. Somebody grew up in Minnesota where they make spam. And in the process of making spam, there were certain days where the odor in their town was overwhelming. And they still find the odor of a certain process of butchering animals to be very repulsive. And therefore, they find the product spam to be repulsive, which there are many reasons for. (laughs) But you can imagine the smell inside the courtyard. Thousands and thousands of slaughtered carcasses everywhere, blood running ankle deep. The smell would have been pungent. So we're struck by how much ritual action is done simply to render the priests and the furniture, the utensils, the sanctuary acceptable to God. God is sending a very clear message. Look at verse 34 and 38. There is meant to be here a strong distinction between the sacred and the profane use of the sacred thing. He says, you can't make this for yourself. God has set it apart for his self, himself. And in the New Testament, we're told that we are to be a sacrifice of sweet aroma to God. In both Romans 12 and 2 Corinthians. God being pleased with our absolute dependence. Jesus says, Those who do not do the pleasure of the Father will be kept out of the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. And, and we ask ourselves, Okay, Jesus... What is the will or the pleasure of the Father? I think it's the way Jesus started the sermon. Would you go to, would you go to G, uh, Matthew 5? I almost said Jesus 5. That would be true, but... Anybody ever sent you there? Go to Matthew 5. If you do not do the pleasure of the Father, you do not... Enter into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So in Matthew 5, verse 2, we see the introduction that starts the sermon to that conclusion. Look at verse uh, 2. He opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. I think it is helpful for us 
to understand that his concluding statements, you didn't do the pleasure of the Father, is meant to circle back to the opening statement, blessed are the meek and the broken and those that sense they need righteousness from somewhere else. They hunger and thirst for righteousness they don't have. Blessed are the needy who find their needs fully met in Christ only. Not syncretistic. Not, oh, I got a little bit of Christ and a little bit of church and a little bit of baptism and a little bit of communion. I got a little bit of all this stuff. That's not the pleasure of the Father. Blessed are the needy. What I want to say in closing is that I want you to hear the tabernacle's evangelism. I want you to hear the tabernacle share the good news. That the unholy can be made holy. That the unrighteous can be made righteous. That the transgressor can be forgiven. That the wicked can be adopted. I think in places like Exodus 30, we hear the tabernacle evangelizing a good news. That even the sacrifices offered for our inabilities, our, our, our transgressions, even those sacrifices are meant to be symbolized in beautiful odors to the Lord. God is pleased with our plea of prayer. God is pleased with providing a ransom price on our behalf. God is pleased with preserving us even though we think we're obeying all the religious requirements. He is our preservation. God is pleased to anoint as sacred what is otherwise common. The tabernacle's evangelistic call is not syncretistic dependence on God, but it's dependence on God alone in Christ. I thought about that ongoing dependence. You know that if I were to ask you, do you, do you think you could ever be pleased with anyone or anything that was just totally dependent on you? Oh, you're still here? Haven't you figured this out yet? But picture with me a newborn baby. Just a few weeks old. All wrapped up in that, 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 that blanket. I don't even know where they get that stuff. Like it's super soft and it smells amazing. And that baby's smell and skin. And you hold that baby. And that baby is totally dependent on you. And I ask, are you pleased to provide and take care of that baby? So the question has to be from the words of Jesus, if your earthly fathers know how to provide in your neediness, how much more your heavenly father, right? So, when will this neediness be over? When will you stop being needy? 
Now, you maybe say never, or maybe you said not until glory or heaven. I want to finish this morning by showing you that God's plan for that temple is to meet your need. So you remember we've been talking about the continuity. We had the temple in heaven that God shows um, uh, Moses. He says, I want you to build a tabernacle like the one I showed you. So the temple in heaven is the temple that, at Eden, the place where God met with his people. Temple in the wilderness. Temple in Jerusalem. Temple in heaven. Okay, so we're, we're like this, okay? I want to take you to the last one. And I want to show you what your neediness will look like in the last temple. Okay, before I do that, your immortality. I wonder about your immortality. What do you think about your independent ability to exist? Well, the Bible tells us that there's one immortal. Listen to 1 Timothy 6. Christ is the blessed and only sovereign, King of kings, Lord of hosts, or Lord of lords, who alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light to him be honor and eternal dominion amen christ could not die the grave could not hold christ right christ could not be kept in the grave he is immortal the only immortal well someday you get immortality too right i'm going to suggest humbly no As we arrive at our final temple, from heaven to Eden, wilderness, Jerusalem, at last, heavenly temple, God with us, new heaven, new earth, descending out of heaven, God with his people. Listen to Revelation 21. Come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me a holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls and declared that the city was four square, its length same as its width. It's a cube. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life. Bright as crystal. A river flowing from the bottom of the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on each side of the river, the tree of life. So there is, bordering this river, a certain type of tree, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruits, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. In the last temple, God's going to have a river and trees to keep us alive. He is pleased with our constant state of dependence on Him. Now, why does that matter? Last week, I asked, what will you do with a sense of guilt? 
I'm concerned that for the Christian, a guilt can be a, um, a debilitating thing. A guilt can be a, a thing that pushes us into isolation. A sense of no one else can relate to my secret sin. What will I do? I've, I've worn out God's long-suffering kindness. All sorts of questions. And I want you to see that it has never been God's intention for you to outgrow your need for Him. Not your desire for Him. It's never been God's intention for you to outgrow your need for Him. For you to live as a person who every moment with every breath depends on His providence. Depends on His mercy and love. And, and I trust that while it is God who works in us both to will and to do, I trust that our, our willing and doing is growing. But even in heaven, He will provide for us. And we will need Him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would cause us to grow in this truth, to be like small children who cry out, Abba, Father, to see the evangelism of your tabernacle, this system of sacrifice and bloodshed and ritual cleansing and all of it being counted as a sweet aroma before you and the plea of your people, Lord, we need you and that you delight in our dependence. That Lord, when we fall and when we when we sin, you are there not only willing to forgive and to restore our fellowship, but Lord, you are there honored and glorified. to restore us and forgive us. Father, I pray that this truth would not be used as a vice for sin to cause us to, to think of sin lightly. That we, we would be protected from going on in sin so that grace abound. But I pray also that this preaching of your grace and your kindness your mercy and your providence would be to your people a source of steadfast joy and delight in you. Lord, that as we're tempted to be relegated into isolation because of guilt, you would free us and draw us into the, the commonality of community. That we are all here needy, and adoring a God who delights in our neediness. In Christ's name, we pray to you together. Amen. Would you please stand with me and sing?